According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me once again in Proverbs 23. Proverbs 23 this morning, we're going to gain some ground based on where we left it off last week. We had a um, dinner setting in uh, verses 1 and 2, and then, or actually verses 2 and 3. Let me just get my Bible passage up and running here, and then we'll get ready for today's message. When you sit down to dine with a ruler, consider carefully what is before you and put a knife to your throat. If you are a man of great appetite, do not desire his delicacies, for it is a deceptive food. This is one of the rare places in Proverbs where you have three consecutive verses that combine together into one uh, poetic unit. So that was one setting whereby you are in uh, a place where with a, with a rich man, with a ruler, with a king, and uh, you have to have wisdom and discernment in what you're doing. We're going to have a different dining uh, presentation that's given uh, this morning when we talk about a selfish man, the stingy man, the man that really doesn't want you there, but he's obligated for whatever reason. And so he begrudges every bite you take. <laughs> and that's not good either. Okay, So both circumstances are, uh, are problems, and believers with wisdom want to be gracious in, uh, in these applications. All right, so before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer, calling upon our Father in His faithfulness to bless our time in the Word. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we come before You this morning thankful for grace and truth, rejoicing in Your faithfulness, and calling upon Your faithfulness yet again, Father, to bless our time in Your Word. Thank You for the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit, how the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. So Father, we come before You with humility, asking for the Word to be implanted that's able to save our souls. We thank You, Father, and we praise You in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. And so, uh, I think we have someone coming in the door there, Chris? All right. As the um, transition from chapter 22 to chapter 23 is concerned, we're just continuing on in our numbering that we're dealing with a section of Proverbs here that's called the words of the wise. And the words of the wise were introduced back in chapter 22, and it's going to, uh, it concluded chapter 22, it spans all of chapter 23, and it takes about half of chapter 24 uh, to get through these 30 statements as far as the words of the wise. We, and then once we get through 24-22, then we have six more words of the wise starting in 24-23 that takes us down to the end of that chapter. So really this is kind of a, a transition and so wherever we do drop it here uh, at the end of the year and, and kind of leave Proverbs suspended for the through the Bible year, when we do get back to Proverbs again, uh, it should be a pretty natural uh, place to pick up. I think no matter where we drop it, we're in a transition period anyway in these words of the wise and I don't think it's going to be uh, a train wreck wherever we drop it really and, and we should be able to pick up just fine. So uh, verses 1 through 3 here of this chapter is words of the wise number 6 uh, which we taught a couple weeks ago, the danger of delicacies for dinner. And uh, this is where you're eating at a king's table. This is where you're, you're somewhere far beyond your station, right? Somebody more important to you, someone more powerful than you, someone richer than you. And uh, you're in a very real danger, which is why the, the idiom there, put a knife to your throat, 
Uh, it indicates the deadly seriousness of this danger. You might wish you were dead after this night was over because of the consequences that can happen in, uh, in a venue such as this. Words of the wise number seven is what we looked at last week, looking at verses four and five. Warns of wearily wanting wealth and watching it wing away. And uh, it's a good sermon on money and it's a good opportunity to be looking at these things. Uh, but do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. Cease from your consideration of it. And you're just dwelling on it and dwelling on it. And why do you want to get rich anyway in the, uh, the principles that are uh, applicable here? When you set your eyes on it, it is gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings. Wealth has wings, all right? And if it flew in in a hurry, it's going to fly out in a hurry, okay? So just be aware of that. This is the nature of wealth. This is the nature of money. This is the nature of the finite world in which we live. So uh, if you're wearily wanting it, then you're going to watch it wing away and uh, you're going to see these verses fulfilled in your life. Willingness to work is a good thing, but not not the wanting to be wealthy. Uh, your willingness to work is a willingness to serve God and to be an imager of God as God himself is a worker. We're made in his image. As we image God, we are working, we are producing, we have an abundance, we have excess, and then then we continue to be an imitator of God with that excess. as As an imitator of God, what do we do with that excess? We share, we're gracious, we're ready to share. And uh, so we are productive, we have accumulation, and we... uh, We are ready to share. All of this is imitation of God. The uncertainty of riches comes in large part to its very nature and the propensity for the way it comes and goes. The propensity for the way that it comes and goes. And uh, 1 Timothy 6, and that's one of my go-to passages when you're dealing with money and you're dealing with wealth and you're dealing with the warnings that God gives to those who are wealthy. All right, now... Where we ran out of time last week, we were dealing with words of the wise number eight. And this is now where we get to verses six, seven, and eight. And again, it's another, um, if you want to call it a tri-stitch, you want to call it, it's a three-verse poetry unit here. Verse six, seven, and eight. Do not eat the bread of a selfish man or desire his delicacies. So this is kind of on the opposite extreme. In verses 1, 2, and 3, you were in a dinner engagement, but that person was wealthy, that person was flaunting his wealth, and he invited you to, to share in it, and he had some concerns there. The evil eye is the idiom here, and the idea your eye is either generous or your eye is evil, and uh, whether you are gracious and generous or whether you are stingy is how that idiom plays out. So do not eat the bread of a selfish man or desire his delicacies, for as he thinks within himself, so he is. He says to you, eat and drink, but his heart is not with you. So he says it, but he doesn't mean it. When he he wants you to, you know, take whatever you want or eat as much as you want and and all, none of that's true. He would actually prefer you're not there, okay? And, uh, but whatever his obligation is for allowing you to be there, um, he's not liking it. So he says to you, eat and drink, but his heart is not with you. You will vomit up the morsel you have eaten and waste your compliments. And this uh, just goes to show you um, all the value that you're gleaning out of this meal. You can't even get nutrition out of it because uh, by the time your dinner's over, all you want to do is just puke, 
right? All you want to do is just go vomit it up and, and not even digest any of it. That's, uh, that's how worthwhile this dinner event happens to be. All right, so I think we got through the most of this, but there were still some loose ends I want to tie up. Proverbs describes a good eye as the generous man and an evil eye as a stingy man. Did we look at this last week? No. Where did I leave off last week? We left off here? Okay. And I remember reading those. All right. Well, then let's just refresh our minds on this. The uncertainty of riches comes in large part to its very nature and propensity for the way it comes and goes. I thought we did that, but just in case. I did that. So this is all new. All right. We'll pick up here. (laughs) If you don't remember and I don't remember, then obviously it needs to be retaught again. People are sometimes shocked that I don't remember what we taught last week. I said, well, I don't listen to myself. I'm just preaching. (laughs) You guys are the listeners. You you tell me. What did we teach last week? All right. Like a a survey I was filling out for Logos, and I just had to make up numbers. I don't know. What's our average weekly attendance? I don't know. We don't take attendance. And what's the average age of our membership? I don't know. You know, Logos can figure that out. We put all the ages in there, so figure it out. All right, so let's look at verses 6 through 8. And I just read them. All right, and so this is a different delicacy danger, okay? It is a danger, and the word delicacy reappears in this um, when it says, uh, do not eat the bread of a selfish man or desire his delicacies. It's the same term that we had earlier in verses 1, 2, and 3, but it's a different setting, it's a different danger, it's a different context, okay? So it's a different delicacy danger. And... um, Again, yes. Oh, there's a lot here to this. All right. Proverbs describes the good eye as the generous man and an evil eye as a stingy man. And this is just a broad expression as it's found throughout the Proverbs. Uh, We've seen it uh, already back in chapter 22, the generous man. And uh, here we have the evil eye. It's going to come back again in chapter 28. Also in the Septuagint, not Bible, but in uh, the Septuagint, we do have the same idiom that's used in Sirach, so we can take a look at that just for comparative vocabulary's sake, not biblical. But the good eye, Proverbs 22 and verse 9. He who is generous will be blessed, for he gives some of his food to the poor. And uh, back in that chapter, we did look at that. We looked at the principles of generosity. We've seen that in a variety of places throughout Proverbs. It's good to be generous. We want to be gracious in our our dealings. But that idiom, to be generous, that's a good eye, having a good eye. And and that might be rough for us. And I don't know that we have anything comparable in, in our language, in our culture. The idea, if somebody has a good eye for something, that, you know, a good eye for, for cars or a good eye for um, clothes or a good eye for business. I mean, we, we kind of use the phrase good eye just related to um, discernment or, or skill, or you've got, a, you've got a, a real aptitude for investments or something like that. Um, I think if we have a modern idiom related to generosity, I don't know that we have anything in our culture or our language where that we would, we would communicate that with the idea of an eye, right? But maybe we should. And this might be an opportunity for us to, to coin a term that could catch on and we can transform our whole culture this way. Um, just getting uh, America to start using a biblical idiom. 
But having a good eye related to generosity might uh, communicate in the sense that as believers we're, we're looking around with a good eye, we're looking around for an opportunity to be gracious, an opportunity to be generous. We might look around for that opportunity and a good eye can spot it before uh, a brother or a sister maybe even even asks for it or, or lets it be known that they need help or anything of that nature. We just have a good eye for where a generosity ministry might give maximum glory to Jesus Christ if it's applied in, in, uh, in an appropriate way at an appropriate time. So uh, anyway, it's not really our idiom, but it was their idiom, and we should at least identify it for what it is and then apply the principles today that we want to be generous believers in Christ. The evil eye is a stingy man. And that's the idiom that we have this morning in 23 and verse 6. Uh, Do not eat the bread of, of a man with an evil eye. I mean, that's just what you're dealing with. Or desire his delicacies. And then it explains it out there. That's why we don't have any questions as far as what this what this idiom means. And we don't go into some other uh, medieval uh, ideas about the evil eye and some of those superstitions that came about later. Uh, this is an idiom that clearly is talking about a, a stingy person that's regretting every bite you take. Because he says eat and drink, but his heart is not with you. Again in Proverbs 28 the idiom returns, a man with an evil eye hastens after wealth and does not know the want, that want will come upon him. So there again you can see his greed, you can see his stinginess, you can see other context whereby the evil eye kind of explains itself, it defines itself in the immediate context of of these usages. All right, Sirach 14.10, Sirach 14.10. Now again, this is not Bible, and um, sometimes it's not worth it to bring these things up. But in this case, I thought, okay, there's uh, maybe some value in that. (laughs) This uh, goes back to the uh, Cambridge Paragraph Bible. This is an 1873 King James edition. A wicked eye envieth his bread and he is a niggard, N-I-G-G-A-R-D, spell it right, pronounce it right, don't blame me for something you think I'm saying, at his table. All right, And this is a marvelous illustration of exactly what Proverbs 23 is dealing with. Because he's invited you, but he didn't want to. And then you went ahead and accepted it. Now he's doubly mad. He's mad because he had to invite you. Now he's really mad because you accepted. And, And again, he says, eat and drink. And with every bite, he's hating you more and more. And this is uh, the idiom that we have it there. All right, now Sirach is a part of the Septuagint Apocrypha. It does not belong in the, in the Old Testament. It does not belong in the Bible. But it is wisdom literature. And it does contain a lot of valid wisdom principles that, that do relate to the book of Proverbs. that do relate to Psalms and other uh, biblical wisdom uh, material. All right. That's why I wanted to show that. All right. <laughs> I'd forgotten. So this is what we're dealing with. We're dealing with a stingy man. And because he's stingy, how do you think that dinner is going to go? Okay? How, do you, how do you evaluate a meal? How do you evaluate a social uh, engagement? Okay? And this is in any social setting, family, uh, romantic, business, church, what have you. Human beings are sitting down together and breaking bread. 
God designed that to be social. God designed that to have some kind of a social effect. And for believers, it's going to have a spiritual effect. That's what it's designed to do. And so uh, if, if you are dining with either an unbeliever or a carnal believer or, or someone that is, is wrapped up in their mental attitude sin so that you can't have the harmony, the fellowship, the like-mindedness, the, the, it's just not there. And so at the end of the meal, you're going to walk away from that engagement, uh, not for the better, but for the worse. And I think that's what this, uh, this text is spelling out. The meal is wasted when there is no like-minded fellowship. The meal is wasted when there is no like-minded fellowship. Sure, you consumed food and beverage of some sort. There was a nutritional value perhaps that, that your body absorbs and, and your, your stomach digests. But you might even struggle to digest it because it might be it was such an unpleasant meal that it's not even sitting well. You know, it's just not even digesting very well. And, uh, and, and you'd be surprised. There's a lot of Scripture that addresses um, not only the concept, but illustrates it, I think, uh, in, in different ways. So um, it might be, might be worthwhile. And I think last week, too, we were looking at Revelation 3 and Jesus saying, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone open, hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him. What is that? That's not gospel. That's fellowship opportunities with the Lord as we abide in the Word of God, as we let the Word of Christ richly dwell within us as we're meditating on truth in fellowship with our Savior. Marvelous fellowship uh, in the Word of God. And we get to share this with one another in Christ. So I think some of these other passages are worthwhile and you might recognize some of them from different classes in times past. When David is lamenting his traitor, Remember, uh, David's betrayer is a foreshadowing of Jesus' betrayer. So as we read Psalm 41, as we read Psalm 55, we're relating this both in the lifetime of David, as we taught it in the Life of David series, but then also in the life of Christ, as we taught it in the Life of Christ series. Because this is prophecy of Judas Iscariot, uh, you know, a thousand years ahead of time, related to these things. So... um, when David confesses his uh, betrayer here, Psalm 41, and it is a Davidic psalm, and we do have some preliminaries there about being rescued in the day of trouble and being protected, no matter who the adversaries are. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me, heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. David knew he was guilty, but he confessed. He he. I think this is what made him the man after God's own heart more than anything else, is that he was always willing to confess and just throw himself on the mercy of the Lord. My enemies speak evil against me. When will he die and his name perish? (laughs) You know, if there's a long line of enemies that just can't wait to see you dead and they're, uh, you know, they're ready to host a party the day they get word that you've, you've departed, um, well, you're in good company, okay? Because, uh, David had such a crowd. Jesus had such a crowd, um, don't be surprised if, uh, if you experience it as well. Um, so uh, when will he die? When will his name perish? And when he comes to see me, he speaks falsehood. Every opportunity that he has when he's with you is to tell more lies and to try to find other avenues of attack. His heart gathers wickedness to itself. When he goes outside, he tells it. 
So while he's with you, he's spewing lies while his heart is accumulating more and more heart damage, more and more wickedness, and then he can't wait to leave to go uh, to spew that with, uh, with his fellow conspirators. All who hate me whisper together against me. Against me they devise my hurt, saying a wicked thing is poured out upon him that when he lies down he will not rise up again. And so obviously he's under divine discipline. Obviously he's going to die the sinner to death. Obviously God is going to take him out. And, uh, and all this, this uh, committee is at work. Okay, And, it, and it, if you think it's limited to Bible times, guess again. It continues in modern times. It continues in, uh, in a variety of local churches with uh, malcontents that depart and form their little uh, committees of, of uh, malcontents. All right. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Okay? And so, you know, we have the context for this related to David, related to Ahithophel. We have the context for this related to Jesus, connected to Judas Iscariot. And, uh, but just the concept itself, if we take the betrayal out of it and just focus on what this verse is highlighting, it's very consistent with Proverbs 23 and what we're studying today the nature of eating with close friends, the nature of the, the dining event, the dining meal, uh, being the opportunity for close friends to fellowship together, to not only enjoy the meal, but to enjoy one another, to enjoy the fellowship, to enjoy the doctrine, to enjoy the things that you can talk about. You know, if you're having a meal with a believer with doctrine, then you've got the opportunity to talk about things you can't talk about with other people. You've got a frame of reference. You've got a shared context whereby we can discuss uh, the, the doctrines that we're learning. We can discuss the scriptures. We can discuss the faithfulness of the Lord in all these things. And so we have the, uh, the application there. It gets even more explicit in, in uh, Psalm 55. And again, there's a context here with the uh, adversaries that are against him. I guess we'll just let that go. Um, but he does talk about, and he begs the Lord to confuse them. Confuse, O Lord, divide their tongues, for I have seen violence and strife in the city. Day and night they go around uh, her upon her walls, and iniquity and mischief are in her midst. Destruction is in her midst. Oppression and deceit do not depart from her streets. So there's a, there's a conspiracy afoot. He knows about it. And they're in positions that uh, they're already within the, the walls. They're on the wall and within the wall. Anyway, so he asked for God to overrule and confuse. He says, it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. You know, enemies are one thing. We all have them and, you know, you, at least you expect it. You know what to expect and it's not a shocker. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion and my familiar friend. You know, Hebrews got so many different words for friends, but it's curious. And in the testimony that David offers on behalf of Ahithophel and the, the fellowship that they had, the like-mindedness that they had, at least up to a point, obviously it's gone now, and uh, this is what makes it worst of all. You know, Satan loves to use the ones that are closest to us because they can do the most damage. 
they hurt the most. And so if he can get a spouse to stab the knife in the back of a, of a spouse, you know, he loves that. He gets Eve to put an apple in Adam's hand. I mean, he does these things. Uh, Michael, the daughter of Saul that became David's wife, was a great satanic tool. You know, you get somebody as close as you possibly can. So my equal, my companion, my familiar friend, we who had sweet fellowship together walked in the house of God in the throng. And so, you know, maybe there's a throng, maybe there's a crowd, maybe there's, there's all kinds of people that are going to the temple for Pentecost or rapture or, booze or uh, uh, the, the, the different feasts, Pentecost or, or Passover or trumpets or booths, whatever it is. They had occasions to go up to the temple and there were throngs, there were hordes, there's crowds going up there. And never mind however many crowds are going up there, there was one in particular as David was making his way up there, he's looking around. He wants to find this guy. He wants to find Ahithophel. That's the one that he wants to sit next to. That's the one he wants to pray with. That's the one he wants to share this event with. Among all the crowds that are there, here's the one that he would love to walk in the house of God in the throng. Okay? That's the, uh, the impact on that. Matthew 26 They're eating in the upper room in the night in which Jesus was betrayed. And what is this? It's an eating event. And it's curious how, um, you know, what, what was the agape love from Jesus Christ directed towards Judas Iscariot? Because obviously Judas isn't even saved, and yet Jesus loved him, called him friend when he comes to kiss him in the garden. And so they're eating And as they were eating, he said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And and it's just, it's so disconnected, it's so antithetical. The purpose for eating, and this is a Passover meal, and then he takes advantage of that, and then he expands from Passover into communion and starts to give, you know, previews of the church age. Um, Not breaking mystery down, but at least giving a preview of things they can look back to and remember when the church age does begin. But he's got this unbeliever there and he's eating with him. And this unbeliever can't wait to betray him. Uh, in fact, it probably would have betrayed him earlier in that day if he had had the chance, but he didn't know. I like some of that's the cloak and dagger that was involved when Jesus uh, was, was very um, uh, shrewd. He was very shrewd uh, about... He was very shrewd about <laughs> all right. Another reason not to use this thing. All right, I said something that sounded like uh the Amazon girl that listens to what you're saying. All right. What was I talking about? Yeah, so Jesus, this is the night in which he's betrayed. But he didn't make known where they were going to have that meal. And the disciples didn't even know where they were going to have that meal. And he sent them into the town and he said there's going to be a man there with a, with a pitcher following, right? And, uh, and so they don't know who the guy is. And my suspicion is, well, so whatever the arrangements had been made, 
they go to the man and they say the master has need of your upper room and he, and he just walks off and they follow him to the house, they follow him to the upper room. That's when they learned. That's when uh, you know, Peter, James, and John at least learned where the, the meal was going to be. Who knows when the other disciples learned. So the fact that they kept Judas in the dark, he couldn't have the soldiers there ready for the ambush. So they have the dinner. Partway through the dinner is when Judas slips out going to fetch those soldiers, right? And then Jesus himself slips out and says, let's go for a walk. And they leave the upper room and they go to the garden. And I can just imagine, you know, when Judas fetched the soldiers, the first place they went was they raided that upper room. But they were gone. Okay, So there was another delay. Meanwhile, Jesus is in the garden praying and, and the disciples are falling asleep and all that's going on. But this is the context then for this meal. And he said, one of you will betray me. And being deeply grieved. I mean, because it's just unimaginable. These are the ones that are closest to him. He used to have thousands. Most of them are now gone. But he still has this core of 12 that are the most intimate. One of them? Surely not I, Lord. Surely not I. And it's not just a denial. It's not just a, uh, um, they can't believe that it's true, but it angers them to think that it might be true. To be deeply grieved expresses that anger. Surely not I, Lord. And he answered, he who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. And there is so much grace in this statement. Because when he said, he who dipped his hand with me, that's past tense. That's completed action. That happened earlier in the night. Okay? And nobody else saw it except him and Judas. And this is just a grace way to say, I know who you are. (laughs) I know who it is. He doesn't name him. He just says one of you is going to do it. And the one of you who, uh, who's going to do it is the one who dipped with me in the bowl. Okay? I tend to imagine it was one of those um, awkward moments when uh, you know, you got a chip in your hand, you're reaching for the salsa, and somebody else has a chip in their hand and they're reaching for the salsa. And then, you know, you both hit the bowl at the same time and, you know, whatever. The chips break and now you got two broken chips in the salsa. And anyway, it's, it's an awkward social moment, but we can all relate to that, okay? And however else, <laughs> all right, I don't know, maybe I'm silly, but this is how I've always pictured this, this passage. He who dipped with me in the bowl. They had that moment, that silly little innocuous moment. But it's a way for Jesus to keep Judas anonymous. It's a way to keep Judas anonymous, but still let Judas know that Jesus knows. So um, he who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who would betray me. The Son of Man is to go just as is written of him. I mean, it's going to happen. Scripture says it's going to happen. It's been prophesied to happen. Psalm 41, Psalm 55, we know there's a betrayer. Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Now this is the chance for Judas to get saved. It's his chance to humble himself, to repent, to throw himself on the Creator God of the universe at his feet and say, be merciful to me, the sinner, or whatever. To confess. I mean, like, think about when he went to Cain, where is your brother Abel? Or when he went to Adam and says, where are you? You know, this is the Lord's pattern where he goes to the sinner and gives them that confession opportunity. 
Instead, Judas, who was betraying him, said, Surely it is not I, Rabbi. (laughs) Well, confession opportunity lost. Salvation offer gone. And Jesus said to him, You've said it yourself. Anyway, there's a a wasted meal, you know. Judas could have gotten saved on that night. But let's look at a couple of other examples. Now these aren't exactly parallel, but I like them as well just for illustration purposes. Uh, In Daniel chapter 11, you've got these kings and their negotiation, the king of the north, the king of the south. And they come together and a lot of the times they're at war with each other. A lot of the times they they pretend to be at peace with each other. A lot of times, you know, one of them gives his daughter to the other one and they exchange daughters to their sons for marriage and whatever. That's supposed to tie uh, countries together. As for both kings, their hearts will be intent upon evil. And I think in some cases those daughters were actually trained assassins. (laughs) You know? Send them in there to, I don't know. As for both kings, their hearts will be intent on evil and they will speak lies to each other at the same table. What kind of dinner is that? You know, you just sit down and you're a liar and they're a liar. You both know you're both liars. What are you doing? You're just going through a charade. You're going through a thing because it's expected. You know, you can say you tried. It's, it's, it, there's just so much there. It's just the, it's the culture but it's the satanic culture related to these things. So as for both kings, their hearts will be intent on evil. and They will speak lies to each other at the same table, but it will not succeed, for the end is still to come at the appointed time. So sitting at the same table, and you imagine, I mean, the, the, the significance of the table Again, New Testament passage addresses this. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. What table are you eating at? And are you speaking the truth to one another in love at this table? All right, then verse 28. He will return to his land with much plunder. So yeah, so it will not succeed. The end is still to come at the appointed time. He will return to his land with much plunder, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant and he will take action and then return to his own land. So this is, by the way, one of these kings, the king of the north is Antiochus Epiphanes. And he is, uh, let me back up a little bit. Yes. In his place, verse 21, a despicable person, a despicable, despicable person will arise on whom the honor of kingship has not been conferred, but he will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. This is Antiochus Epiphanes historically in the Maccabean era. And Antiochus Epiphanes is the greatest type of Antichrist we have in the biblical record. Many Antichrists have come, but this one specifically is a foreshadowing of the eschatological Antichrist. And the overflowing forces will be flooded away before him and shattered. Also the prince of the covenant is going to be very hostile to, uh, to Israel. After an alliance is made with him, he will practice deception and will go up and gain power with a small force of people. So just like Antichrist is going to do in the tribulation, making a treaty with the Jewish people and then betraying it. In a time of tranquility, he will enter the richest part of the realm and he will accomplish what his fathers never did. 
nor his ancestors. He will distribute plunder, booty, and possessions among them. He will devise his schemes upon against strongholds, but only for a time. Remember, God always keeps uh, a firm control of what he permits Satan to do. So he will stir up his strength and encourage against the king of the south with a large army. And uh, in these issues here, those who, um, let's see, the king of the south will mobilize an extremely large and mighty army for war, but he will not stand, for schemes will be devised against him. Those who eat his choice food will destroy him, and his army will overflow, but many will fall down slain. There's choice food in a king like we were looking at. All right, so then he, they're lying at the table. He returns with plunder. Then at the appointed time he will return and come into the south. But this last time will not turn out the way it did before for ships of Kittim will come against him. Enter the Roman Empire. Enter, not empire yet, the Roman Republic. And the ships of Kittim are actually Roman ships built on Cyprus, but Roman ships. And they defy the, uh, the warfare. It's a marvelous story. You can get this in the, uh, the life of, uh, or in the Daniel notebook. Marvelous story. One of my favorite stories in all of uh, ancient history related to this uh, Roman senator. All right. Anyway, that's Daniel chapter 11. How about Luke 11? Another illustration. With a dinner that's just trouble right from the beginning, or a lunch in this case. Luke chapter 11, verses 37 and 38, when he had spoken, a Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him, and he went in and reclined at the table. And when the Pharisee saw it, he was surprised that he had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. Remember, this is a part of the Pharisee religion. This is not a part of Mosaic law. This is not a part of anything in, as an Old Testament command, a ceremonial purity the uh, Leviticus gives ceremonial ritual for the Levitical priesthood. It gives some ceremonial ritual for priests and Levites and their, their, their functions in the, in the temple, their functions uh, in the feasts and the, their duties in the, in the sacrifices. Um, the idea that a non-priest or a non-Levite would have some kind of a, a ceremonial purity ritual, that's not biblical. That's just something that the, the Pharisees made up. That was their religion to convince themselves that they were more pure, more holy, more set apart than those non-Pharisee Jews. You know, it's like all of the Roman Catholic legalism, that none of it's biblical. It's just stuff they made up so they could have their own, uh, their own standard of self-righteousness in, in legalism. And so he's surprised. You know, and the, the legalists sometimes when they come, when they encounter a grace guy, they, they just doesn't compute. They just, they just can't they can't fathom, it blows their minds that, that these people that they're encountering aren't, aren't legalists like they are. They start to, and, and then, because their minds are so blown, the, the only thing they can conclude is that you, you just must not be saved. <laughs> you know? Because you're not a legalist. Alright, so the Lord has the opportunity to teach some doctrine there, but you wonder when He says you're full of dead man's bones and <laughs> all these things. Uh, Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. And so he's deliberately insulting them. So one of the lawyers stands up and says, teacher, when you say this, you're insulting us too. So he says, all right, woe to you lawyers as well. <laughs> I mean, what a confrontational meal. I'm not sure who's eating at this point, but he's preaching pretty hard. 
And, uh, and then he leaves. So when he left there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile and to question him closely on many subjects, plotting against him to catch him in something that he might say. I mean, they were just dedicated to his execution, no matter what. Trap him in something. We found the man, now let's just find the crime so we can put him to death. I think Stalin would have approved. <laughs> Wasn't that Stalin who said, show me the man, I'll show you the crime? Yeah. All right. The meal is wasted. Let's move on to words of the wise number nine. Words of the wise number nine. And it's a single verse this time. And it's verse nine. Proverbs 23, nine. Just a single verse. Do not give an account to the fool who despises God's wisdom. Do not give an account to the fool who despises God's wisdom. Proverbs 23, 9 says, Do not speak in the hearing of a fool, for he will despise the wisdom of your words. Do not speak in the hearing of a fool, for he will despise the wisdom of your words. This is an admonition that we want to pay attention to. It's an admonition to not communicate Bible doctrine. It's an admonition to not extend wisdom. In a particular setting, in a particular time, in a particular place, to a particular person, and we've got to have the wisdom and discernment to apply this appropriately. This is not universal. You can't just camp on this verse 24 hours a day, 7 days a week for the rest of your life and then never talk to anybody about the Lord. <laughs> because this is not the only verse that addresses the concept. Okay? We have other verses that say, always being ready to give an account for the hope that is within you, yet with gentleness, right, with reverence. We, we have... Uh, the opportunity to give the gospel to, to somebody that's really asking questions, to someone that wants to get saved, to someone that has a legitimate hunger for the gospel. We better give them the gospel. We better give them the answers. So there is a time to speak. There is a time to be silent. And um, if we're wrong about which time this is, then we're going to be accountable. We stand before the Lord. So if it's a time to speak and the Lord leads you to speak, then speak. If it's a time to be silent and the Lord leads you to be silent, then be silent. But whether you speak or you're silent, it's by the leading of the Lord that you're, that you're making that criteria, you're making that decision. Okay? So this is what we're dealing with. Do not give an account to the fool who despises God's wisdom. Because if, he's not, if he doesn't have ears to hear, then why are you wasting your time? What are you doing? That doesn't edify. That's the, uh, the fool. Now, um, backing up to an earlier proverb where we dealt with this, Proverbs 9. He who, and Proverbs 9, by the way, parental wisdom, you, you've got to get this across early. This is a father to a son training a son, you know, how to, how to function in his own adult capacity when he leaves home and he stands before the Lord. He who corrects a scoffer gets dishonor for himself. And he who reproves a wicked man gets insults for himself. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. So understand where you are and who you're dealing with. And understand what is not appropriate to the scoffer. What is not appropriate. Uh, you can't correct him, you can't reprove him. All you're going to get is dishonor back. All you're going to get is hatred back. 
So don't waste your time. Don't waste your time. So this came early in Proverbs 9, verses 7 and 8. And so if uh, you were here back in those days and you have notes from Proverbs 9, you can go get those and, uh, and look those up. In fact, I think I even published the, the chapter 1 through 9 notes when, uh, didn't I? Yeah, I published those notes. They're sitting on the website, the chapter 1 through 9 notes. You can look those up and remind yourself what we taught in those two verses. It's going to come back again in chapter 26. And I love this. Back-to-back verses that seem to contradict each other. Okay? They do contradict each other. Because the context for verse 4 is going to be different than the context for verse 5. And you have to know what occasion is this. So Proverbs 26.4 says, Do not answer a fool according to his folly or you will also be like him. Verse 5 says, Answer a fool as his folly deserves, that he not be wise in his own eyes. And we're going we're to spend some time on this. I think that you know, the Lord illustrates this. I think there's other examples of this in the Scriptures. Verse 4 says the opposite of verse 5. They're both true. The Holy Spirit inspired both and put them right next to each other so we can't miss the, uh, the truth on this. And I think, again, it's that principle of being silent when He leads you to be silent and speaking when He leads you to speak and speaking appropriately when He, when he leads you to speak. Because some of that speaking appropriately is going to be mocking ridicule. It's going to be mocking ridicule, taking up a taunt. There are a lot of taunts in the Bible. And, uh, and in fact, Israel is going to have a taunt against Satan when he's bound in the abyss. Take up this taunt against him. So answer a fool as his folly deserves means um, taunting, ridiculing, treating that idiot like an idiot, that he not be wise in his own eyes. Okay, we'll, we'll deal with that. We're, we're not quite there. Um, but do not answer a fool according to his folly or you will also be like him. So there, there are occasions, and this is why you want to be sensitive to the leading of the Lord, and if he, if he leads you to close your mouth, then follow that leading and close your mouth. Because if you ignore that leading and you open your mouth and, and you start to blather all the foolish stuff right back at him, well then now you've got two idiots that are babbling back and forth and that doesn't edify anybody and doesn't glorify Christ. I think ultimately, of course, Ecclesiastes spells it out. A time to be silent and a time to speak. Okay? That's biblical. Just know what time it is. <laughs> okay? Know what time it is. If, you know, if it's a time to be silent and you're speaking, then, then you're, uh, you don't know what time it is. And also, if it's a time to speak and you clam up, because, not because you're led to, to clam up, but because you're chickening out, because you're, you're carnal or you're fearful or you're just, um, you're being led to speak and you resist that leading. And you just go, oh, you know, right? There's a leading to speak and then it just, it hits you that, man, this is, this is a, I'm opening a can of worms here. Well, God led you to speak. So open that can of worms, whatever it is, Okay. Maybe it is a can of worms, but if the Lord is open, is leading you to speak, then, you know, He wants those worms out of the can, okay? So dump them out. All right, 
I don't even know where that phrase was. Ed probably knows. I, I'm going I'm to find out what can of worms is all about. So this is the principle. And it's, it should be pretty straightforward. Now, did Solomon learn this from David? Because it's older than the Proverbs, actually. We can find a Davidic psalm, Psalm 39, verses 1 and 2. I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth as with a muzzle. Sometimes that's the best thing. Just ask the Holy Spirit to muzzle you. While the wicked are in my presence. Oh, you know, we, we, sometimes we say, I, I'm, I'm biting my lip, biting my tongue. I just, I want to say, but I, I can't bring myself. So I'm just, mm, bite my lip. While the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I refrained even from good. And my sorrow grew worse. Okay. So there's a concept here. And then the longer he stayed silent, his heart's going to heat up. My heart was hot within me. It's like an, like a, uh, an engine that overheats. You know, Jeremiah testified to that. Other prophets testified to that. They've got the truth burning inside of them. And if they, if they hold it in, then it just continues to, to fester and burn within. But there is a time to, uh, to be silent. And if you're in the presence of the wicked, then maybe that's what you need to do. Just keep the doctrine to yourself. They're not going to be edified by it anyway. So perhaps this isn't Solomon adapting what David had taught him. And then, you know, Jesus came out with this when he said, don't cast your pearls before swine. Matthew 7 and verse 6, do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine. And then so often, I don't know, this does this get ignored? I think, you know... Um, I understand that other side, and I'm not denying that other side. We are ready to give an account to everyone who asks, okay? But I think people abuse that text. 1 Peter 2, 15, give an account to all who ask for the hope that is within you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Okay. And yes, I, 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 I accept that. I claim that. I'm not arguing with you on that, but I'm wondering if you're reading that correctly. Because it says to everyone who asks, you're not giving it to your enemies. You're not giving it to the opponents, to the people who aren't asking, to the people that, that are um, hostile to your gospel message. Okay? When the, when the Jehovah's Witnesses are knocking on your door, they're not there to ask you for the gospel. They're there to give you their evil. I feel no obligation to, to talk to, the, to those folks. That's just my conviction. That's my conviction uh, that they're not there asking me. They're there promoting Satanism and I'm not, I don't have time for that. To me, that's giving what is holy to the dogs and throwing my pearls before swine. And so to me, when, when, when those guys are knocking on my door, I'm going to obey Jesus Christ. I'm not going to give them the, the holy bread or the pearls. Or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. So Jesus says don't do it. And we have the, uh, the application there. All right. Ah, that was a quick one. <laughs> um, words of the wise number 10. So yeah, I mean, a lot of these Proverbs just preach themselves, don't they? Do not speak in the hearing of a fool. Or he, will be dis- you will, he will despise the wisdom of your words. All right, verse 10. 10 and 11. 
Do not move the ancient boundary or go to the fields of the fatherless, for their Redeemer is strong. He will plead their case against you. If these are familiar, of course they're familiar. This is a blend of two previous words of the wise. Words of the wise number 10 blends two previous words of the wise. In fact, what we end up with here is a is kind of a blended tandem of words of the wise number 10 connected with words of the wise number 1. Uh, words of the wise number 4 combined with words of the wise number 1. Get blended here with words of the wise number 10. And you can see that when you go back and you remind yourself of what 22-28 was about, what 22 verses 10 and 11 were about, the moving of the ancient boundaries. We spent some time with that, talking about the inheritance principles and the, uh, the, uh, the place that the, uh, the land grant had for the Jewish people as a part of their tribal and family inheritance. Talked about the nature of real estate theft when you're moving the, the markers and, and it's a form of theft. Um, also the use of where the Lord himself is the defender. Back to uh, verses 10 and 11. Verses 10b and 11. Those verses are not correct. I'm going to have to fix that slide. All right, so in chapter 22, verses 22 and 23, do not rob the poor because he is poor or crush the afflicted of the gate for the Lord will plead their case. This is where God becomes the defense attorney, where God becomes the advocate. Yahweh himself will plead their case and take the life of those who rob them. This is when the Lord himself stands up and sides with the poor. When you're robbing the poor because he's poor, when you're crushing the afflicted at the gate, God himself becomes their champion. And here we see it again. Their Redeemer is strong. He will plead their case against you. So that earlier words of the wise is being adapted here. Okay? I'll fix the verses before next Wednesday. Also the uh, words of the wise number four that had come up related to if I can find it here. Do not move the ancient boundary. That's in uh, 2228. Do not move the ancient boundary which your fathers have set. So yeah, we taught that with words of the wise number four. The moving of those boundaries. So it comes up again, but it blends it with the idea of the widows and the orphans, the people that are poor and afflicted, those that if you think you can victimize them, think again. They have an advocate, they have a defender. Not only somebody that's going to plead their case, but someone who stands as an avenger, someone who stands as a goel, okay? And uh, the, the Hebrew verb goel that speaks about being a kinsman or being a redeemer or being an avenger this is, uh, this is the vocabulary that we have here. And in fact, it's the only place all throughout Proverbs that, uh, that this verb shows up. It is the only use of the Redeemer in the book of Proverbs. Uh, extraordinary when you realize there's 102 uses of Redeemer in the Old Testament, but only one here in, uh, in the book of Proverbs. All right, so this is where we'll pick up next week, Lord willing and rapture pending. 
Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for truth. I thank you for the privilege and blessing that we have to assemble together. I thank you for the protection that you offer, Father, as you hedge us about and protect us, hindering anyone that would want to come in here and stop what we're doing uh, or bring us to harm, Father, as, as more and more of the, of the darkness grows darker and more and more of Satan's servants uh, hate us. We just thank you for being faithful and we give you the praise and the glory in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.